I'm going to teach for the next few weeks on five keys. It's quite a gob of keys. You should see the car that comes with these. <laughs> and um, five keys is a little teaching method I developed to help young people in our discipleship program to uh, remember how to, how to hear teaching that comes down the pike. There's all kinds of teaching. Not all of it's good. And there's a lot of it these days. And we have a lot more access to teaching than ever before. People are through our phones. And we can listen to teaching from all over the place. There's an abundance of it. But I want to give young people uh, a way to discern quickly, easily, five simple ways to uh, be able to dismiss or discard teaching that's not healthy, or to be able to embrace it, be able to accept it. And so I've developed this little teaching concept. We have a book called Five Keys. Uh, we'll have some in the, in the Welcome Center uh, next time you come. But um, I just thought I'd go this morning and review these with you. So there's, whoop, whoop, whoop. can someone get that? Can you get that? Thank you. We'll take them all off. This is the biggest one. And um, this is a simple way to be able to assess whether something is, is something you want to put in your life or not. God developed a, a concept of being able to discern whether something was good or not by what he called two or three witnesses. And it started off in the law that you couldn't say someone did something bad where they could be punished or be put to death unless there were two or three people who saw the same thing. And it, it was a basis of, of, of justice. And so he developed that. That was God's idea. And then it got applied to land tran transactions and contracts where you get two or three witnesses who had witnessed that this is what the deal was, this is how it was said, this is what was done. And even in the court of law today, that is a, a primary way whether you can tell whether someone's guilty or innocent. But then it gets into the New Testament, and it's applied to biblical truth. And Paul said, I'm, I've come to you now two or three times because uh, everything that God says is established by two or three witnesses. And so one of the keys that he showed me when I was a young disciple myself, and I was afraid of being deceived. There's a lot of bad teaching back then as well. There always has been. Um, and I was asking the Lord, Lord, how do I keep safe? How do I keep sound? And one of the things he showed me is to try to find two or three verses that says exactly the same thing. So there'd be a teaching, and, and, and all, all the really weird, uh, off-balance teaching at the time, they would take something from the Old Testament, something deep in one of the prophets, they'd take it out, it'd be an obscure verse, and they'd make it say something that it wasn't actually saying. And then they would teach it in, in, as a New Testament principle. There's lots of that. But I always found, I thought, isn't that strange that it's one verse, that they're making a big doctrine out of one verse. Most legalism, most legalism that you and I have ever had rammed down our throats was a one-verse concept. And the idea is to be able to say, I'm not going to let you do that. I'm not going to uh, be suckered into believing that. You have to show me where it says it two or three times in the Bible. Ideally, if it's a major principle, it's going to be four times. Jesus always overdid, him, uh, uh, overdid it because 
Uh, that's just the way he is. For example, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are three witnesses that show everything about Jesus. John is the fourth, coming from a different perspective, but he, he overdoes it. He can do that. But what, all the misrepresentation of God's words usually based on one truth. So that's a key. So when we're studying, we have to say, okay, now where else is this in the Bible? So um, another truth, another principle, one of the five keys, is what's the context say? Because it's so easy. Most of the weird stuff that we see, they take it out of context. It's not, it's not uh, what the person is writing. It's almost like you, you're reading, you're reading. All of a sudden, they take this verse, they take it out of context, and it doesn't fit into, into the flow and then they ride that like a hobby horse, and they really go to town on that particular truth. But when you read it, that's not, that's not in the flow of what the person was writing. There's just no way that they could be saying that. So they take it out of context. So that's the next large key. Another key is, what does it say in the original language? And uh, you don't have to know Greek. You don't have to know Hebrew. There are dictionaries that make it very easy to be able to just look up a word. In fact, it's never gotten any easier than it has today. You just look it up and say, is that what it, that word says? Because there's English words that uh, don't mean the same as what we read in the Bible. For example, this old Pentecostal preacher one time, he was teaching, and he said, Sometimes I just need an old blanket, an old quilt around my shoulders. I need a comforter. And Jesus said, the comforter shall come. So he's using an English word for comforter that's not related to the Bible. And so that's a key. We need to, we need to understand a little bit of Greek and Hebrew um, just by using a dictionary. That's all I've ever done. And it's a great, great help. Another key is, could that have been... When you, when you hear teaching, could that have been what the author originally intended? And there's lots of teaching that we have to throw out because there's just no way that could be what the author intended. So that's a major key, and I'll, I'll illustrate that in a minute. Then the smallest key, and any one of these keys will work a couple of them at a time, two or three at a time, will undo almost any belief, anything that's coming down the pike that someone's imposing on you, wanting you to believe. You can use, you don't have to use all five to, to master it. Just a couple of them sometimes will do the trick. This little one, just this little stubby one. When you look at it, uh, there's a lot of teaching in the Bible, uh, or a lot of teaching today that where they say, this is what the Bible means, and they take you to something outside the Bible to interpret the Bible. And what we found is the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. You don't need to leave the Bible to understand what the Bible says. And there's, you know, there's a boy in the, in the jungles of India, and he doesn't have access to some book that somebody wrote or some, um, some secret manuscript or some kind of a cultural... Uh, idiom that, that they said or used back, he doesn't know that. So he's never going to be able to understand what the Bible says because he doesn't have access to those books. We think that's wrong. You don't have to go outside the Bible to understand the Bible. In fact, there are people who minimize the Old Testament. They encourage people not even bother to read it. Well, you can't even understand the New Testament unless you understand the Old Testament because the best commentary on the New Testament is the Old Testament. 
And so we don't need to go outside the Bible, and there's lots of examples of that. And I, I thought today I would just illustrate this with a few examples. Why don't you go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and Ruth will put these up on the screen behind me as well. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let's look at um, beginning of verse 12. It says, I do not t permit uh, a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Eve was not deceived, but the woman was being, being deceived, fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they will continue in faith Love, holiness, and self-control. So we're traveling in the Ukraine. I went there for 10 years, uh, every six months, and uh, would spend weeks traveling and teaching in Bible schools. We got in right after the Iron Curtain fell, moving in, and, and it was a, a, an amazing experience, an amazing time of teaching. But we got in these remote old villages where very few people uh, had ever been before. No one from the outside had been to most of these villages before. And, and the people were held in incredible bondage, especially legalism. Some of the worst legalism I'd ever seen. All about rule keeping and, and uh, uh, they would excommunicate you for the smallest infractions. It was a wild time. And people would come to us in tears and they would say, the Bible says that the only way that the only, and it was often women who were coming to us. The only way that I can get to heaven is by having babies. And we said, why would you believe that? Why would you say that? And they said, because the pastor tells us, it says in the Bible, that she shall be kept, she shall be saved in childbearing. And the pastors are teaching that the way that you get to heaven is you must have babies. In fact, you must have lots of babies. Uh, the, my translator had eight children, and that wasn't enough. So there's a tremendous pressure to have lots of babies. And so we looked at this verse, and we used the five keys. Is there any other place in the Bible where it says, the way to get to heaven is you have babies? Is there another verse anywhere? Not one. So we can, we can dismiss that teaching based on that key. Then we looked at the context. Is Paul, is, is Paul teaching about how to get to heaven? Is he teaching how to be saved? Is that the context of this verse? No, it's not the context of the verse. In the original language, is it possible that when he used the word saved, they're interpreting it strictly as being born again? Is there other ways to use the word saved? And so we look it up in a strongest concordance, and it says that uh, saved could mean protected, kept, kept safe? Could that be the word that Paul is using when he says that women who live godly shall be kept safe in childbearing? Could that be the, the word? Could it have been possible? Is there any possibility that that's what Paul meant? When we read in Romans where Paul says it's by faith that you're saved. So we know that that would contradict. Paul would never contradict himself. He'd teach a whole chapter in Romans on how to be saved, and it's by faith. It's by faith alone, not by works, lest any man should boast. Well, making babies is work. That's something you can do within your own, your own power. And so we could dismiss it just using four of these five keys readily. And when we told them that, they, it, it blew their mind. They said, how could we have believed that? How could we have 
allowed that, that concept to disturb us. Well, there are people uh, everywhere we went in Ukraine who believed that teaching because some pastors were taking that verse out of context. And listen now, the Bible is being used to hurt them. The Bible is used to control them. The Bible was used against them rather than to set them free. And all legalism, it's where you take a Bible truth and all of a sudden it's being used against you rather than for you, to keep you in bondage. We could dismiss that. Um, Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus. They're both leading pastors in the church. And he writes to them about a little phrase called sound doctrine. And about four times he writes to them about sound doctrine, that we must have sound doctrine. When we look up the word sound, it's a medical term. And it means healthy doctrine. Doctrine that makes you healthy, spiritually healthy. Then he writes about two men uh, uh, who are going around and they're teaching. He said their teaching works like a cancer in the church. That's unhealthy teaching. It's working like a cancer. It's like a disease that's, that's killing their faith. It's killing their joy. What a contrast. Healthy teaching versus cancerous teaching. And that's the same. We could say the same thing today. Paul was dealing with this in his day. So it's really been from the beginning. It's been from the very, very beginning of the church that there's been cancerous teaching and healthy teaching. The one who decides whether you're going to let that teaching into your body, you're going to let that teaching into your, into your spiritual life, is you. You have to decide. I can't protect you. No matter how, what, how thoroughly I pastored you, I can't protect you. The only person who could do that for you in your home is you. You're going to have to know the five keys for yourself. You're going to have to know them because all kinds of winds of doctrine are going to come to try to influence you, to move you, to get you to go places. And somebody has to say no to it. And that's you. No one else can do that. Let's look at a couple other examples. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul's teaching about love. The context is the gifts of the Spirit. He starts in chapter 12, teaching, he says, I, I don't want you to be ignorant anymore about the gifts of the Spirit. That's the context. Chapter 13, we take this chapter, the love chapter, we take it out of context. We'll even take it out of context, put it on a wedding invitation and send it out, and it has nothing to do with the gifts of spirit. But chapter 14, he goes right back to talking about the gifts of spirit. So chapter 13, the context is the gifts of spirit. That's how you read that. So he's teaching about love because uh, that's... The issue for this church is their motivation for using the gifts was selfish. It was carnal. So he's trying to correct that. Now look at verse 10. He says, but, the, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. Then he goes on to say, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. All of us in this room probably at some point in time have heard, heard a teaching that says the gifts of the Spirit have passed away, that there are no gifts of the Spirit today. The reason that uh, we believe this, they say, is because when the, uh, 
when the men sat around and they decided what was going to be in the Bible, and they're going to make up the Bible, they're going to do uh, uh, the canonization of Scripture and saying this Bible, or this, this letter is of God, this letter should be in the Bible, this letter should be in the Bible, this one we're not going to put in the Bible, we're going to, it's, it's not part of the canon of Scripture. And there's people who said, when that which is perfect is come, is the Bible itself. This, this Bible that we have today, when this has come, we don't need the gifts of Spirit. We don't need the gifts of Spirit because we have the Bible. We don't need revelation. We have the Bible. And they said, the way to understand this verse is when the canonization of Scripture has happened, we no longer need the gifts of Spirit. How many have heard that teaching before? I've seen people in bondage to it because they believe in the gifts of spirit. They believe in speaking in tongues as for today. And they say, what you believe is of the devil because now that we have the Bible, that verse means that now that we have the Bible, we don't need the gifts of spirit. So what you're doing and what you're believing is of the devil. Could that possibly have been what Paul was teaching? Is there any way that Paul could have actually been teaching He's in, in verse 10? He's talking about the canonization of Scripture. There is no such thing as the canonization of Scripture. He didn't even believe himself that he was writing Scripture at the time. Otherwise, he would never say, hey, listen, I left my coat at so-and-so's house. Please bring it to me. I, I need a little bit more paper. He didn't see himself as writing Scripture. The Holy Spirit did and, and, and used all of that. But there's no possible way that you can find anywhere, in, anywhere else in the Bible that says the gifts of Spirit have ceased. There's not one verse. So we can't use two or three witnesses. The word perfect, could the word perfect mean something else other than, other than the Bible? Could it mean that when the, at the end of the age, when everything is done and everything is complete, we no, long, we no longer need the gifts of Spirit? Well, that's true. We don't need the gifts of Spirit in heaven when everything is wrapped up. Can you imagine... There's no need to prophesy in heaven where God himself speaks directly to us. We don't need to speak. He doesn't need to speak through a person in order to speak to us. We can sit in his throne looking at him face to face. We don't need the gifts of spirit in heaven. You don't need the gifts of healing in heaven. Even the leaves of the trees provide healing. You don't need discerning of spirits in heaven. There are no, there are no demons in heaven. You don't need to speak in tongues in heaven. We all speak one language. We, don't, we won't need to have someone interpret it for us. We're not going to need... We're not gonna, can you imagine being an evangelist, having the gift of an evangelist in heaven, and everyone's saved? That would be a little bit of hell. Everyone's saved, and in your heart is beating evangelism. We don't need these gifts when everything is complete, when everything comes to an end, whenever the consummation of everything happens. That's how you understand that verse. But people in this room have, have heard that teaching to hold them in the bondage. How many have read in, in, in uh, Matthew chapter 25 about the ten virgins? And five of them had oil, five of them didn't get enough oil, and the bridegroom, bridegroom comes. How many have heard that teaching? And the teaching is this, oil means it's the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you can't go to heaven. The way you know you have the Holy Spirit is you speak in tongues. So if you don't speak in tongues, you can't go to heaven. That's been taught. That's actually been taught. People have been dislodged from their faith because someone, someone 
got in their face and said, because you don't speak in tongues, you cannot go to heaven. That's nonsense. Could that possibly be Jesus' motive for teaching that parable? No. Is there another way to understand oil other than it to be the Holy Spirit? Yes. What was his point? What was he teaching? Are there other verses? Is there any other verses that says, unless you have the Holy Spirit, you cannot go to heaven? No, there's not one. Not one single verse where Paul said, by the way, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not going to heaven. It's, it's a Pentecostal legalism. It's, it's a Pentecostal box that try to put people in to, to limit their faith. There's just no way that we can possibly believe that. But listen, whole denominations believe that. Whole denominations believe that. It's astounding. We need to, we need to understand how to get a hold of Scripture, how to interpret it. These days, there's so many crazy things. Uh, there's a thing called generational curses. And there's, I have friends who believe this. They're, I mean, good people. They're not bad people for believing unhealthy, unsound teaching. But, but can you read anywhere? I mean, it's used as a, as a major tool in counseling that you need to go back and understand where you might have been cursed. Your father, grandfather, great-grandfather might have been a mason. And, and there's a curse on you. Where did Paul write any of this? These people came out of Gentile land. They come out of one of the worst backgrounds. They're idol worshipers. He said, many of you were immoral and homosexual. And he describes their condition. He said, that's the kind of people you were, and you're saved. But he doesn't say once. You need to go into your background and undo curses that were put on you in order for you to grow in Christ. He doesn't say it one time. And yet people, I, I meet people almost every day who are saying, well, I must be under some kind of generational curse. That's the reason I do what I do. That's the reason my life is broken. That's the reason I'm having all these problems. I must be under a curse. It's based on one verse found in Deuteronomy that even in the Old Testament no longer meant that. Jeremiah, he later on, he said, I know the Proverbs that are being taught, that if the father eats sour grapes, his children's teeth will be set on edge. In other words, if, he eats, if the father eats something sour, the children will pucker. There's a cause and effect. What you do will affect your kids. There's a sense where that's true in terms of your, your lifestyle and how you live your faith out in front of them. But it's, uh, Jeremiah said, that's been said on the streets of Jerusalem. That's been taught in all of our synagogues. He said, but the day is coming where each man will stand and give an account for himself. It'll be based on what you do, not what your parents did. The whole generational curse teaching is a dead end. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of, of energy. I've never believed it, yet I've been able to live above the pull of this world. I know lots of people. In fact, it's only been, a, it's a modern teaching that's only been around for, in my lifetime. What did the people believe before this? They never, you can't read anywhere where they, they taught this or they wrote about it or they said, hey, this is an issue. Let me give you another one that you've all heard. Jezebel spirit. It's like one of the biggest things I hear every day. People are coming and saying, well, there's a Jezebel spirit. That explains 
why they are the way they are. How come we never read about the Jezebel, Jezebel spirit and the writings of Spurgeon or Wesley or, or Whitfield or any of these guys? I mean, they never knew anything about it. How could they have lived out the victorious Christian life? They never knew. In fact, Jezebel's spirit came out in 1980-something. That teaching is a brand new teaching. It's false. It's wrong. It's, it's, it's unhealthy. It's mostly looking for someone to blame. It's mostly a judgment. But the way we can throw it out is, can you find anywhere else in the Bible where, where we're warned? Is, is Luke concerned about it? Is James concerned about it? Is Jude saying, look, there's a Jezebel spirit out there. It's going to wreck your church. It's going to wreck your family. Who else wrote about it? Where do we find that? We find it in one verse in Revelation that could mean something different. And it doesn't even talk about a spirit of Jezebel. If you Google the spirit of Jezebel, it's like the biggest, baddest demon that's ever been. And I, if someone told me the other day, you can't even cast it out. It's so big. It's so bad. It's so all-prevailing. It makes the devil look big, and it makes God look small. Let's throw that. Let's knock that on the head and throw it over the fence. That's a useless teaching. Yet all kinds of people, all kinds of good people, teach it. You'll never hear me teach it because I can't find it in the Bible two or three times to build a case for it. It doesn't say anything about spirit of Jezebel. It's a woman who was is, who is, uh, called that by Jesus because of what, the way she was behaving. It wasn't a spirit. It wasn't a demon. How many have heard that teaching? It's so prevalent today. I hear it all the time. Well, you need five keys. You need to say, I'm not going to embrace this. I'm not going to repeat this kind of teaching unless I can find other places in the Bible. Could it possibly have been what Jesus was writing about when he wrote that in that letter? Could that possibly, the big doctrine that we have today doesn't even match what it says in the Bible. Not even close. We had a guy come to our town back, back when that teaching first came out, back in the 19, early 1990s. It was traced back to one author. And this guy came into town. He was hyperventilating. He was really anxious. He got all the pastors in the area. He says, I got the most important message. And he went on to describe. We sat there. We listened to what he, he said. This is a message for the church. You have to hear this. It's very important. So we all listened to see what he was going to say. And he introduced Jezebel's spirit. And he went on to describe all the works of, all the, works of the flesh, Every sin in the Bible, he said, that is the Jezebel spirit. And I remember I laughed. Are you saying that all of that is the Jezebel spirit? Why doesn't the Bible say, why doesn't Paul say, you know, don't do these works of the flesh because that's a Jezebel spirit? He doesn't. We have flesh. We deal with flesh. That's another teaching. Someone's taught that we no longer have flesh. We no longer have any issues of the flesh to deal with. That's been overcome at the cross. We no longer have flesh. Well, my flesh is alive and kicking. I'm having to deal with him every day, all the time. It's the biggest, I'm not even focused on the devil. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to deny myself. That's the biggest issue with Penn Clark. That's what hurts, hurts my marriage. That's what hurts my relationships. It's not Jezebel. 
It's my old carnal nature, which is incredibly selfish. Can I show that in Scripture? Absolutely, all the way through. 1 Corinthians alone is talking about selfishness and how it wrecks everything in church. That's what I deal with. That's what I'm struggling with in my own life. That's what I have to work on. I don't want to get into it because it would take too long, but and I will address it at some point in time. There's a teaching that says that women are not allowed to teach, and it's based on a verse that we read in 1 Timothy, that women should never teach. And maybe I'll leave this with you as a homework assignment. Do you think that's really possible? Like first, It says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 14, that women are to be silent in church. When just a chapter before, he's talking about them prophesying, or actually two chapters before, in chapter 11, he's talking about women prophesying with their heads covered. And if they're allowed to prophesy in church, how can they be silent in church? It's not possible. It's not possible to be silent and prophesying at the same time. If you just take a strong concordance and sit down with those verses that put condemnation on women, almost all condemnation is aimed at women. And if you just look at, look at that objectively and, and, and look for any other place where it talks, anywhere else in the Bible where it talks about hats and hair and cutting hair and, and, and that, that women, women can never teach men and can never be in leadership, Look for anywhere else in the Bible where it says that. You can't find it. In fact, just the opposite is true. Then you have to explain people like Deborah, and you have to explain lots of women in the New Testament who are fellow laborers with Paul, and you got Priscilla and Aquila, and none of it makes sense. And we, we're, we're stuck in this dead end of not knowing what to believe. We're stuck in hesitation. The thing with hesitation is that it will get you killed. You can't really believe. You can't really sink your faith you can't set your faith in something because you're hesitant. If you want to see hesitation, just watch a squirrel on the road. I see people, I see people in church like that. They don't know what to believe. They, don't, they can't go forward. They're, they're double-minded. Therefore, they can never really say anything with confidence. They can't teach anyone anything with authority. But all the, the, the two verses that we use to hold women in bondage so they can't express themselves, they can't use their gifts, are, are being misconstrued, taken out of context, and being used against women rather than for them. The Bible doesn't teach that women cannot teach men. What the Bible does teach, and, and, and not just in Timothy, in other places, is women shouldn't dominate their husbands. Women shouldn't teach, her, teach their husbands like they're training a puppy. You'll do this, you'll do that, you'll do this, don't say that. Did you wear that? Don't do this. And when you do that, it creates anger, it creates frustration. The Bible actually describes that. You can find verses for that. You're not to take their authority, you're not to take their place. Men, you need to be men. You need to take your God-given responsibility of leading your family closer to Jesus. That's your, that's your responsibility. When that gets flipped around, you'll end up being silent. You'll be the one who'll be silent. You, you'll be the one who have no confidence in, in what you believe. You'll be, the, you'll be the one who, when winds of doctrine are blowing against your house, you won't say anything. You won't stand up and say, we're not believing this. Men, you need to be men. And our wives want you to be, don't you? 
We want our, we want our men to be men of God. And the Bible has, has said that from cover to cover. We've taken, we've taken a scripture to silence women, not realizing by doing that we're actually silencing the men. The Bible talks about positions that God has created, and we'll take a whole, a whole uh, seminar to teach this, so I can't do it justice here. Except when I, as a new Christian, I remember reading those passages and saying, there's just no way it can mean, there's just no way it can mean this. Holy Spirit, show me what you're teaching here. Show me how to do this. And I used the five keys, and God showed me an amazing body of teaching. In fact, we would never have to teach Jezebel spirit if we would teach proper headship for the home. We would never have to teach that nonsense. But the reason that nonsense is so widespread is because we're not teaching what the Bible does say. It's laying on the surface. Our, our, our churches have gotten so twisted upside down we're not teaching the things, we're not majoring on the things we should major on because we're majoring on things that don't make sense. We're majoring, we're spending all our time and energy on things that don't produce a single grape. They don't make godly homes. They don't make godly men. Somebody has to stand up and say something about it. It's wrong. Let's teach the stuff that it does say. Men, you need to be men. You need to look after your home. You need to defend your home against... The, all the stuff that comes down the pike, all the influences that come into our home. Don't let your wife be the spiritual leader of your home. You need to step up and do something. You need to be the one that trains your children. That's your responsibility. We can show you that from Bible verse or Bible book to Bible book. It's everywhere. And yet we've taken one verse and majored on it and made it say things that it would otherwise never say. During Martin Luther's day, there's a, a form of punishment. If someone was doing something wrong, they'd put them on the rack. And the rack was, it looked like a big bed. And they would tie them up with ropes. They'd tie up their arms above their head to tie up their legs. And then they'd turn a crank. And as they turned the crank, it, the bed would pull them apart. And the next thing you know, you're feeling your joints being pulled apart. And you'd confess what you did wrong because you're on the rack. And Martin Luther said, some people have taken Bible verses and they put it on the rack and they stretch it until it confesses things it would otherwise never say. <laughs> we do it all the time. I can't go through the list of all the things that are wrong teaching. I think that'd be a waste of time. I wanted to use a few illustrations that are obvious, ones that we can teach. The, the women uh, not, being, not being able to go to heaven because they're not having babies... That's not being taught here in America, but it's being taught in other countries. But it's a perfect example of how we can use all five of the keys to dismiss that. My goal is not to teach you every wrong doctrine and show you how not to believe it. That'd be like training a bank teller. Here's every piece of counterfeit money that's ever been produced. Therefore, now you know how to recognize counterfeit money. That'd be a waste of time. What you do is you train them, teach them, how to use, how to recognize and discern a real dollar bill. You're trained only on the real stuff. And then once you get a feel for it, my wife works at a bank, she says she can just feel it. You just get a feel for it and you can dismiss it as being false because of how, how you discern it. 
I want us to be a people who know how to discern God and his heart, his ways, his word. I want us to be a people of the book. I want us to spend a, a summer in the book. I want us to go deep in it. You can take anything I teach, anything that comes down the pike, anything from your favorite author, anything that's being brought, there's, it's going to happen, it's going to happen here where people will say things that aren't true. We're not going to stop it. We can't stop it, in fact. But you have to discern. You have to be the one to say, I'm not buying it. I'm not going with that. It violates the five keys. It violates three of the five keys or two of the five keys. I'm not going to set my heart on this. That's your responsibility. That's your responsibility. You have to be a good dad. You have to be a, the leader of your home to decide what's going to happen for your home. Is that, is that good preaching? Amen. Let's stand together.